Hello, and welcome back to Psychiatry XR. I'm your host, Kim Bullock, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jessica Hagen. Hi, Jessica. Hello, everyone. We are joined today by Dr. Howard Gurr, who is a psychologist who practices in Long Island, New York. In 2015, Dr. Gurr was introduced to a VR platform, Sias, now called Amelia Virtual Care. And he started using VR in his practice in early 2016. And he is currently now an ambassador for Amelia Virtual Care in the U.S. market. And Dr. Gurr promotes the use of VR and has webinars on the use of VR and beta test systems for other VR companies. And Dr. Gurr has also developed a really useful worldwide online directory of VR practitioners to help promote VR to the public and generously provides a site for patients to find VR therapists for free. And he is also one of the few clinicians really focused on VR that I know and has real virtual world experience integrating XR technology into practice. And he has been so helpful and kind to me as an informal consultant and colleague as I continue to learn and incorporate XR into practice. He also is a fellow podcaster, although he's been at it a lot longer than us being an early adopter of podcasts starting in 2016. He hosted a show called The Shrink is In. Welcome, Dr. Gurr. Thank you, Kim. Glad to be here. Well, Jessica. Great to have you. Well, I thought we could just kind of dive in maybe with your history. What exactly got you using VR in your practice? Was it just a random event or was there a story behind it? Yeah, there is a story behind it. <laughs> I have to start off by saying Basically, I'm a tech geek, mm-hmm. and I accept that title gladly. And I've always tried to find ways to incorporate technology in my private practice for efficiency, either in terms of managing my practice, even the billing of the practice, and using the internet as a vehicle to market myself. So I was one of the first people, I think, who had a website. I think it was 1999, and I had a dial-up account. Remember those things. And it was $19.99 for a dial-up account, but $24.99 if you wanted a website. So I figured, all right, I'll make a website. And I found a way to make a website out of Microsoft Publisher 98. And they had a module where you could create a web page. And I did. And I was one of the first people out there with a website, which got me a lot of business until everybody else joined in. Yeah. And then around 2000, I came across Skip Rizzo's work. Uh, where he had a virtual classroom. And I looked at that and I think that's a great way to assess and treat kids with ADHD. Because at the time, all we really had was uh, rating forms, which I think they still use, and something called a TOVA or the Connors CPT, which were computerized tests that as a clinician were incredibly boring to administer because you had to sit there with a the child. And then they had to look at a black screen and hit the mouse when every letter came up except the letter X. That was the diagnostic tool. So I contacted Skip and I went, hey, this is great. But at the time I reached him, he had already sold it off. I think PsychCorp bought it from him. And he moved on to other things. So he obviously worked on you know, PTSD and Brave Mind and all those things. And then I basically tabled it. 
And then around 2005 or 2006, I wanted to do virtual reality therapy. There was one company that existed at the time out of Atlanta, and they had a platform, but I wanted to be remote Mm -hmm. because I wanted to do only public speaking anxiety for executives. Mm, Very specific. Yeah. I thought that was a great market, but I, I didn't want them coming to me. I figured if I went to their offices and I could just be mobile, that'd be great. Hmm. Wow, that's very forward thinking. Yeah, uh, it, but it didn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what happened was that company said, no, it won't work. You need a much more heavy duty processing and it won't work on a laptop of any sort. So again, I tabled it. And then around 2015, I was at a workshop on technology and private practice. And the presenter just kind of threw out, oh, and there's this company in Barcelona that's working on virtual reality with Samsung phones. And I went, there it is. That's it. And so at that point, I introduced VR into my practice, but I spent probably three, four months bothering everyone I knew mm-hmm. because I had to play with it. I had to get more accomplished in, in using the platform. And I didn't want to open it up into my patients until I felt comfortable with it. So I bothered every relative and every friend I had, and I made them go through it. And after about three, four months, I figured, all right, I'm ready. And that's when I started using it in my private practice. So that was around 2016. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Early 2016. Got it. And I've been using it ever since. Now, I can't say that every patient I have is a VR patient and that it's appropriate for every particular problem. But when it's appropriate and I see the need or the benefit for VR for that particular patient, I definitely introduce it. And since the pandemic, I've been doing everything remotely, which is. I guess not the typical way that people use VR, but it's becoming that way. Yeah. 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 The Amelia platform just lends itself to that. So it makes it easy. Yeah. So in the current coming to the present moment, what platforms or tools are you using in XR? Are you just using Amelia or anything else that you're using or is it strictly Amelia? It's mostly Amelia. When I was seeing patients face-to-face, you know, every platform, I think, has its limitations. Yeah. And they can only go so far. And it's important to kind of individualize the VR or the you know, virtual environment experience for the people who have specific issues. Mm-hmm. And so when I was seeing people face to face, it was really great. I would use an Oculus download specific 360 videos. Right. So, for example, I might have someone had difficulty with insects and I would have them go through the virtual environment with insects with me in the office. So I was always concerned really about re-traumatizing people if they did stuff on their own that was reminiscent or would re-spark their phobias or anxieties. So that was the great thing about doing it face-to-face. I have subsequently used other 360 videos with people who had another headset and they would use it at home or they would use it while I was with them in a video communication platform. Mm -hmm. But primarily the the, uh, platform I use is Amelia because it's inexpensive for the patient. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the um, other platforms use Oculus 2 or Oculus 3 or, you know, the Picos. But that would mean either A, the individual would have to buy that Mm -hmm. or I would have to supply it. And I'm not sure I want to be in that business of supplying expensive headsets to people where I might or might not get it back, or if I do get it back, I'm not sure. I'd have to re-clean it, re-sanitize it. So mm-hmm. I don't want to be 
invested that much in that kind of technology. I imagine institutions would be, but as a private practitioner, that's kind of cost prohibitive. Yeah. And the onboarding. Yeah. They tell somebody to buy a cheap head-mounted display and use their cell phone as the engine solves that problem. Yeah. Yeah. I find that any other platform, the onboarding is so complicated. It usually doesn't work out and there's a payment involved. And so I haven't been able to get any other platform except uh, Amelia to do remote telehealth visits using XR as well. So that's kind of validating to hear you're kind of in the same boat. Because it seemed like before the pandemic, we had a lot more tools and things to use. And then now that we're remote, things are getting a little bit more siloed, but maybe that hopefully, do you think that's going to change or open up? Will we have other platforms? What do you see happening in the future? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that when I first started, as I said, I think the major player in in the field was virtually better. Oh, yeah. And I've been tracking the development of companies in the VR mental health realm. Mm -hmm. And I'm up to 114. Wow. And that's worldwide. Now, I think because of that, and I also think the pandemic probably escalated that development because people realized, oh, you know, teletherapy works. And and Mm -hmm. because I remember six or seven years ago, I got a board certification in telemental health. Mm -hmm. And my friends looked at me and went, what'd you do that for? (laughs) Why why bother with that? And I went, just wait and see. You'll see. It'll be beneficial. You know, and I jokingly told people that I could be doing therapy anywhere and not necessarily wear pants. You know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but, but I thought of the idea that, you know, I could be anywhere doing therapy, obviously via the internet. And then when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, everyone's turning around going, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. Yeah. And all of a sudden, teletherapy reached a level of acceptance that it didn't have before. Right. Because before that, everyone thought, oh, you know, there's a distance between you and the patient and, and how valid is that? And it's not as good as face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's enough research to suggest, well, maybe it is pretty good and it does work and it does answer questions about accessibility because, you know, patients can't find clinicians. And, you know, if you live 50 miles away from your clinician, if you, you know, live in, you know, Monkey Falls, Minnesota, if there was such a place. <laughs> <laughs> you would have difficulty and teletherapy takes that away. So to answer your question in the short term, I think that we're in the process of an evolution here. And I think that uh, virtual reality therapy is still in its infancy. And I think that the things that I am unhappy with in virtual reality therapy will be solved, supplement to companies stepping in and investing time and energy and I think, you know, there's no place in the world for 114 companies, I think, to be in the same geography. So ultimately, what's going to happen is these companies are going to either disappear or merge, as we're seeing some mergers now mm-hmm. with Amelia and XR and mm-hmm. a few mm-hmm. other companies that are, that are merging, because that's the only way they're going to survive in this environment. And I think that they have to get more technologically sophisticated, but at the same time become simplistic. Yeah. For clinicians. Yeah. Right. Because it's got to be one button, you know, kind of uh, a therapy tool. Yeah. It just surprises me that there's 114 out there, but really only one that's usable right now by most clinicians. Well, there's a couple of others that are usable, like a C2 Care from France. Yeah. I mean, but the onboarding is so hard for the patients and, and um, the costs, like you were saying, 
I mean, it's possible to use it, but it's the ease of the use is a big barrier. Yeah. And and I think the other question I have is, and I, I was hoping Apple was going to solve this one, but yeah, I don't think they, they did. Because I thought once once Apple steps into the territory, <laughs> you know, they, they kind of like sit back and watch everybody else kind of make all the mistakes. Yeah. And then they walk in with a product that is so much more simplistic and sophisticated. Yeah. And I thought, oh, once they enter it, it's going to open up a lot of doors. But that hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's only a few months in, maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I got a couple of generations for that to occur. Right. Right. Yeah. But I think the, the problem is, is that VR and augmented reality are not compelling enough for the average individual to buy it. Yeah. And I have kids who have VR headsets and they play with it for a while and then it winds up in a closet somewhere mm-hmm. um, because it's just, there's no real reason. And it goes back to the idea that, you know, there was no real reason, I think, for people to have a cell phone mm-hmm. 30 years ago or 25 years ago. Yeah, been 15 years ago. And now you can't live without one. Yeah. So when VR or augmented reality or standard reality becomes as ubiquitous and as universal, I think the technology will speed up and we'll see a lot more advancements in things that we don't have now. So for example, I know there are companies that are working on biometrics built into the headset. Right. Well, that's what I'm really missing when I do, you know, um, teletherapy with VR because I can't get the biometrics. I just get subjective units of distress. Mm -hmm. And that's not always so accurate because people sometimes either underestimate or overestimate their anxiety levels. So I really need the data, bio data, but I don't have that yet. So that's something down the road that I think is going to develop. And I think it's going to get more and more sophisticated and I'm hoping more simplistic in design. Yeah. So the onboarding, as you said, is ridiculous. You know, some of them you have to like side quest your device to get the app on. Yeah. And I could do that, but I don't think people generally can do that. No, it's really hard. And then, you know, there's one platform where the clinician pays a monthly fee and the patient pays a monthly fee. Yeah. That that doesn't doesn't fly with me either. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one last question. I'll let Jessica, she's got some burning questions to come in, but yeah, the other thing that um, I'm still in grief and mourning about is Google Cardboard left YouTube, that option, because I could use that for a lot of idiosyncratic stimuli that we needed for people. And, the, you know, there's a huge library on YouTube of VR360s that you could use on Cardboard, and then that disappeared. Do you know anything about that or why that happened? Or I don't know anything about that, but I do know I still can download Google 360s. Yeah, but it's not in the cardboard format that you could put it in a in a headset as far as oh, really? um, what I've tried. Yeah. I really don't know about that. Okay. Because as far as I know, because I haven't downloaded any of them for patients recently. Uh-huh. I have maybe six months ago I did, but I haven't recently. Yeah. Although maybe you can and maybe you know how. And yeah, let me know. Well, I'll look into it. Okay. Like, come up with an answer. I'll let you know. All right. I'll turn it over to Jessica. Actually, you know, Dr. Gary, I wanted to circle back a little bit. So you said that there's still a lot that's missing within a lot of VR experiences. What are some of those things that you feel are missing or that maybe companies are not necessarily doing correctly? I think when you have standard computer-generated virtual environments, you can't cover everything. 
And so you come up with a generic version of what you think that patient may need. So if, if it's a driving phobia, you know, you come up with a, a generic driving virtual environment. But I've had people would say, well, you know, it's not, it's not so much the road. I don't like when the road's crowded. Or I don't like when there's a shoulder on a road. Or I'm on a higher road and I could look down. And so there's no way I think that a company can generate the variety and range of virtual environments I think the clinicians would use. So I always think that it's important for them to have the ability to import into a platform, a virtual environment that meets that need or is close to that need that is still controllable by the clinician. And there were companies that did that, which I thought were great. You could download a Google Earth right. video or an image of, let's say, someone had difficulty on a particular corner, they had a car accident on a corner. You could download that corner, and now you could kind of work through their anxiety. Or you know the, the YouTube 360s that work, that kind of thing, where because you, you can't have a, a library, so to speak, of all the virtual environments that people need. Right. So that's one of the downsides. I wonder if AI is really going to help with that in the future. I wonder if you'll be able to create virtual environments kind of on the fly whenever you need utilizing AI. That would be terrific. That That'd be, be terrific. amazing. Yeah. 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 I have one other question now that we're talking about Amelia and usability and tools. Do you know what's hindering them to releasing the practice in between sessions? Because before the pandemic, they could take at home and practice their cue and their scenarios, but now that you can only do it with the practitioner in the room. So what's holding up having homework reinstalled for Amelia? Is there some regulation? The homework still exists. Yeah, but it's only relaxation homework. It's not any exposure homework. Right. So I've asked them about that uh -huh. because the first iteration, you were allowed to yeah. have a session and you could use that for homework. I think their concern was something to do maybe with the FDA and concern about potential litigation if someone gets re-traumatized uh, because they're using it on their own. Yeah, I was thinking something happened, liability. Right. And so I asked them about that and I said, that really was beneficial. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we're working on that for next year. Got it. Okay. So I think they're planning on it. Okay, great. Yeah, we got to have them on the podcast pretty soon. Yeah, I think they're one of the major players. Like even, you know, the idea of using Samsung Gear VR and, and headset, other companies followed them. They were the first. And I think that they opened up that door and all of a sudden all these companies realized, oh, this is a viable option. It's not that expensive to operate. And it created a whole different therapeutic model. You know, the theory is that it takes 20 years for technology to eventually become enmeshed in mainstream clinical work. And you would think, well, VR has been around for a long time, but my theory is that we're only at year seven. Uh, why is that your theory, year seven? Because it's been around for so long, but no one knew about it. Right. And there wasn't enough research. Even if you look at the research, like 1985, I think there was one research article on VR in therapy. And in 2017, there were a thousand. But even though a thousand seems like a lot, it's really not a tremendous amount of research articles. But I think that 2015 or so or 2016 is really when it happened. Like 2016 was supposed to be 
the year of VR. It was supposed to be the year VR was going to explode. It never happened. I think a lot of that, though, has to do with provider hesitation in actually implementing VR in the space, right? Yeah, but, but I also think VR as a medium didn't explode. Oh, uh, yeah. And so what happened was it didn't hit this huge marketplace that they projected it to do. And so because of that, I think people didn't become aware of it. And clinicians are a conservative bunch. Right. who will not pick up on something, I think, unless they've been trained in it. And they're kind of technology averse in many levels. And so there's so many reasons why it didn't get picked up in practice, but it didn't even get picked up by the general population, Right. I think. And so from my point of view, normally what happens, I think, is technology comes from you know the top and eventually starts leaking down to the general population. So technology might be a medical practice of some sort, and eventually it becomes part of our everyday usage. I think it's the other way with virtual reality. I think everybody has to have some knowledge about it and experience with it and play with it and accept it. And then it might start leaking up, so to speak, to the more clinical experience. Like the personal computer. Yeah, yeah. You know, the personal computer kind of evolved and became something that everybody had within their house after they tried it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And you're unique because you're an early adopter and you're in private practice. And I'm sure there's a few more like you, although I was wondering in your experience in private practice, like, do you worry about HIPAA? Did, Did your malpractice insurance give you any problems or is there anything as a private practitioner maybe listening to this wanting to dive in any words of advice well i kind of limit my practice to the the areas that i'm comfortable in and that i've been trained in i also think that if we look at vr as a tool to enhance clinical experience and clinical practice as opposed to something new and different it's not different than anything else it's exposure therapy the way i use it But does your malpractice think that way? (laughs) That's what I mean. (laughs) Malpractice has nothing to do with it. So you didn't have to disclose anything or there weren't any logistical things to adding this to private practice that were different than if you didn't use it? Not at all. And and there's not a difference, I think, between using it and not using it in terms of, you know, insurance reimbursement. Right. Uh, Right. I had no, no trouble with that as well. Got it. But, but I say to people, listen, if I was working with a phobic patient who had difficulty with a dog, and I brought a dog into my office, would that be any different? Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is I'm bringing in a virtual dog. The difference between me saying, okay, sit here, and I want you to imagine that there's a dog in front of you. And using imaginative tools in traditional therapy, yeah, I could do that. And people have done that for years and years and years. But it's not as efficient, and it's not as effective as doing it with virtual reality. Okay, so they're not worried about cyber sickness or collection of privacy or anything about, did you disclose it? Do you have to disclose it in malpractice? I do disclose the possibility of cyber sickness, Mm -hmm. but the way I work the practice, for the most part, there is no HIPAA compliance issues because even, you know, Amelia doesn't really know who I'm working with. Everybody's anonymous. Yeah. I know who I'm working with. And so my notes are all my notes. They, they don't have notes. 
Um, And I asked them about HIPAA compliance issues, and they swear that they're not keeping any data. Uh, So I understand the HIPAA compliance concern, but from clinical experience, I've had no problem with any of these issues. That's great to hear. It's just a matter of adopting another tool. And that's another thing in terms of private practice, I think. I think clinicians make a mistake. And the mistake is born out of their training. So for example, I think it's the American Psychological Association's standards that for a program to be approved, accredited by them, they can't really have any business classes. They can't work that edge of psychology in terms of promoting private practice. It's all research-oriented. So people get out of school and they have clinical skills and they have all their experience and training, but they know nothing about running a business and they don't even see themselves as a business. So they figure, all right, I'll rent an office, I'll get a telephone number, and I'll print up some business cards and I'm in. And that's a mistake because that doesn't work. And so they have to understand that I think it's important to separate yourself somehow from every other clinician. We're probably unique here. So I'm in Suffolk County, Suffolk County, Nassau County, the major part of Long Island. Of course, Brooklyn and Queens are part of Long Island, but they don't see themselves that way. And so in Nassau and Suffolk County, there are a thousand licensed psychologists per county. And I'm not including social workers, mental health counselors, you know, marriage, family therapists. I, I don't know their numbers. I just know that there are a thousand licensed psychologists. And so this is a unique area. So there's probably a therapist every block around here. But if you go to other parts of the country, that's not the case at all. And so here you need to differentiate yourself, mm-hmm. I think, to make yourself you know, viable as a private practice. Yeah. So it's a business decision too. Right. Yeah. And I think the fact that you know, if you have to buy an IQ test, it might cost you $1,600, $1,700 for an IQ test. And so whatever the subscription is for a virtual environment package, it's a business expense. And I think people have to understand that, you know, that business expense can be made up yeah. very soon if you have enough patients using that particular tool. Yeah. So I think it's important to see themselves as businesses and they don't. Yeah, I get it. But then also for a lot of providers that are hesitant just to utilize the technology and whether the technology is going to be as effective in clinical practice, what would you say to them? I can only tell them that I find it efficient. And I will see patients under 10 sessions and resolve whatever their issue is. And I could not do that before in traditional therapy. And about a third of my practice are actually referrals from other clinicians. And so in the process of the therapeutic uh, relationship, all of a sudden the patient would say, oh, by the way, I have to go to my brother-in-law's wedding and I haven't been on a plane in 20 years. And it's six weeks from now. And the clinician might say, well, I'm not going to get to it in six weeks, but Dr. Gurkat. And so I would then get that patient for, you know, whatever time period I needed to get them on the plane. And I'm not really stepping on the other therapist's toes because I'm not touching the other things. I'm very focused on what I have to resolve and work through with that patient. And then I send them back. And so it works so efficiently that I, I don't understand why people don't incorporate it. I just think it, at this point, it's like the gold standard in exposure therapy, because the next step is bringing people to places. So would I have to you know, bring a person to an airport, get on a plane with them, 
do all the things that really you needed to do, but it's too time consuming and costly and inefficient. And VR is close to that and able to hit the same anxiety levels that I need to, to get through to train people to get over their anxiety on their own. All right. Well, I have one final question for you. So since this is mm-hmm. psychiatry XR and you psychologists are always ahead of the curve and you've been doing this for three decades and psychiatrists are just coming into this, do you see any special role that psychiatrists could play or anything that's unique for psychiatrists versus psychologists in this XR realm? Yeah, I think there are areas that we as psychologists, aren't really going to touch. And so obviously, you know, uh, VR and medication combinations or psychedelics and VR, cognitive impairments, neurodevelopmental disorders, those are areas that psychiatry would touch probably more than we would uh, because they're more physically and medically related. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that probably down the road, you know, augmented reality and psychedelics are probably going to be a lot bigger than they are now. And I, because it's going to combine two, a little offbeat approaches that would work together, I think uh, synergistically. So mm-hmm. I think that anything having to do with psychotropics and VR and medication and VR, yeah, that's, that's your realm, not mine. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, any other thoughts or anything else you want to say or thoughts about what the future of XR is going to look like? Well, here's my dream. My dream is born out of, and again, I'm going to date myself on this one, Star Trek, the second iteration, where they have the the holodeck. Mm -hmm. And... In the holodeck, what would happen is it's a big, large room, and they would use it for rest and relaxation because they're on a ship, not going anywhere. But what you could do is you could walk into this room and program the room to be whatever you wanted it to be. So if you wanted, I remember there was one episode where they where they all got dressed up in Western cowboy gear, and they walked into this 1800s saloon that they created. Mm-hmm. And so they pushed the buttons, and they created this saloon, and there were real-life avatars. Mm-hmm. in the saloon who they interacted with and that's my dream mm-hmm. that if we could just individually program a virtual environment where someone has difficulty let's say someone has social anxiety mm-hmm. you know you you could create that particular environment and yeah you know it's interesting i just had this thought in the 80s my friend and i decided we were going to open up a therapeutic bar <laughs> And it was going to be a place where people had social anxieties could now mingle. And it would be, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there would be clinicians in the bar with them, mm-hmm. kind of coaching and and, and helping them, mm-hmm. uh, which we, we never did. But that was the idea that we would have a therapeutic, non-alcoholic bar scene and people would, would practice. Oh, you never implemented it. Never did it, no. <laughs> well, it's not over. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's potential here. Yeah, well, that's where the virtual reality would. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it wouldn't be a brick and mortar place. It wouldn't have right. to cost anything. And I think people are going in that direction. Like, yeah. for example, there's this company, uh, Simly from Norway. Mm-hmm. I think they've been on Spitzy mm-hmm. schedule. I've played with their platform, and it's pretty engaging. Mm-hmm. 
they have AI avatars mm -hmm. that interact with a non-script format, mm -hmm. and they basically respond to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fascinating. I thought it was it was very fluid. Yeah, there's a lot coming. All right. Well, I think we could make your dream come true. I see it happening. <laughs> I'm hoping. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great. Thank you. And so that's it for this episode of Psychiatry XR. We hope you gained a new perspective on using extended reality in healthcare. And thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Psychiatry XR, the psychiatry podcast about immersive technology and mental health. For more information about Psychiatry XR, visit our website at psychiatryxr.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tune in again next month to hear from another guest about XR use in psychiatric care. And you can join us monthly on Apple Podcasts, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Psychiatry XR was produced by myself, Kim Bullock, Faiza Arshad, and Jessica Hagen. Please note the podcast is distinct from my own clinical teaching and research roles at Stanford University. And the information provided is not medical advice and should not be considered or taken as replacement for medical advice. This episode was edited by David Bell and music and audio was produced by Austin Hagen. See you next time. 